from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host, Chris Pace. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers, as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. This week, I am delighted to be hosting a special episode of the podcast where we are going to dive a little deeper into some work that uh, Kev Breen, our team researcher, has been doing. And along for the ride with us this week is, I mean, Antony, I want to call you seasoned, but I think it's fairer to call you jaded. Yeah, miser- miserable is fine. Miserable is miserable fine. Miserable PR, miserable cyber PR guy, uh, Anthony Dalton. Anthony, actually, this would be a good opportunity right at the beginning for you to just tell us a little bit about your background, how you've ended up in in cyber PR. What do you do every day? Um, I mean, it was kind of an unfortunate accident, to be completely honest with you. Um, I I started out many years ago as a tabloid journalist, knocking on the doors of people who had just died and chasing people around in my car. <laughs> classy (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's me through and through and then basically um because of a uh a broke ex-girlfriend i ended up going into public relations um and that's obviously um where i thought that the money lied um and uh, since then i've basically worked on uh cyber security companies for the last 16 17 years I have worked with uh, some of the first research teams many, many years ago before disclosure was really even a thing when we just go out there with stories and see what happened, which was particularly uh, interesting. The Wild West, that sounds like. Yeah, very much so. Um, and then I sort of came through. I've worked at everything from malware bytes to uh, running my own agencies and all that kind of stuff. So um that's that's been the journey um and now i'm broken and tired (laughs) (laughs) but but more importantly seasoned um anthony seasoned anthony is experienced a strategist (laughs) anthony's gonna (laughs) offer insight into the whole um the pr shenanigans that go on when you have to when you have to disclose uh disclose things which is stuff that we have talked about on the podcast before um but really this all began as usual with kev um he was probably in his shed tinkering with something on a weekend um and then uh, stumbled across something that's interesting to cybersecurity people so kev give us the give us the brief introduction what were you trying to do and what did you end up doing i quite like smartwatches um and uh, when Pebble first came out, I loved Pebble, and then Pebble went away and Fitbit bought them. So I was like, let's have a look at Fitbit. And I quite like my Fitbit. Um, but the so Fitbit has uh, watch faces and applications, uh, and I wanted my watch face to do something it didn't already do. Um, I wanted it dis- to display stuff in a very specific way. Um, so I thought, I'm going to have a go at building my own Fitbit watch face. Um, so I grabbed the development kit, um, started playing, started tinkering. Um, and then as I inevitably do, I got bored with just building a watch face. Uh, and I thought to myself, I'd, I'd just been doing some uh, research on spyware in the uh, Google Play Store. And I thought, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if I can make my Fitbit do spyware-like things. Turns out, I can. <laughs> so, okay. So you wondered whether there was, a, and actually, I suppose that makes complete sense. I mean, 
you know, spying spyware in its traditional uh, in its traditional guise was a thing that watched what you did on a on a PC, and then it, it's become a thing that watches what you or your partner does on a on a mobile device. And I guess the next natural step would be, well, what can it do on a on a wearable? I I guess I I guess I understand your your I understand your train of thought. <laughs> I suppose we have to think about what um what things on a on a wearable device are you know, are interesting to a potential, uh, to a potential spy. Well, and it seems to have also kind of morphed recently into stalkerware, which is the, uh, the modern permutation of spyware, isn't it really? I suppose that's what I'm thinking of, aren't I? I'm thinking about a thing that I would install on, uh, the device of a significant other in order to be able to make sure that I knew everything that they were doing. Yeah. So I was, I was reading through that and Fitbit do a really good job of documenting their software development kit and their internal APIs. So as I was going through this, I was like, all right, so what can I get on my watch face? It's like, you can get your heart rate. It's like, great. Um, you get the time, obviously, uh, geo coordinates was a thing. Um, and then I was like, geo coordinates, like geo tracking was a thing that spyware does. Um, and then I started, the deeper I got, the more I found out. I want to be, like, to be fair to Fitbit, this isn't as pervasive as other spyware and stalkerware is. Uh, their APIs don't expose, like, significant amounts of detail. And I think for me, the thing was, is that I was able to get data off the device. Uh, and we're not talking, like, lots of stuff, but, like, heart rate, gender, age, uh, height, weight, resting heart rate, and calendar events is kind of like the limit of what I was being able to get off. But I could take that data and I could send it anywhere I wanted because this thing has connection to the internet. And as long as you agree to that pre-selected tick box that says this Fitbit app that you're installing can talk to the internet, uh, then I could just send all that wherever I wanted. Yeah, we'll say it feels... It feels like there's a there's um the the idea that in combination with other information that you might have been able to uncover about an individual through some other method, um it opens it opens quite an obvious window to um to social engineering. I'm also assuming that if somebody if you can access someone's calendar, um you would probably be able to see, you know potentially other people's names in those calendar uh, invites their their birthday yeah. for example things that gets put by default into certain calendars yeah so uh, the example payload uh, that i was pulling uh had a the date the time the title the description and the first and last name of all the attendees whether they'd accepted or not um so the, there's like I said, there's quite a bit of information uh, that could end up in there. Not always the same. And so from the point of view of the installer of this particular watch face, they have obviously no inkling that this is a thing that this application will do, or does it give them a clue that it might? Yeah, so that was some. That was one of the really interesting things. So um, I, I started prototyping. Uh, and I was installing, I was sideloading it into onto my own watch, and I was using the uh, the virtual device that you get as part of the SDK, where you can do this all locally. And I was like, I've got something that works, you know, I can stand up a server and I can start sending this data off periodically. Uh, and then I was like, that doesn't really mean anything if you can't get users to install it. And mm. we know that um, people will either just send out APK files. Um, or they'll start their own app store and say, come and install it. It's all very side mm. which isn't really a thing you 
or at least it wasn't really a thing I thought you could do with Fitbit. Like you had to go into the Fitbit app, you had to search it, you had to install it. Um, so I started looking at like what's the actual life cycle of publishing an application. Um, and there are arguably only a couple of steps. So the first thing you do is you package your application up uh, and then you publish it to the Fitbit uh, app manager. And once it's up there, then you can uh, version it, you can write your details, add the screenshots, and then you can select for it to be approved, at which point it goes off into moderation. And from what I get from Fitbit, that's a manual process. So a person will inspect uh, your application. But there's this weird little middle ground where after I publish it to uh, the Fitbit gallery, which is on gallery.fitbit.com, Fitbit presents me with a private installation link. So I can send that link to anybody I like, and if they click it, it opens up in the Fitbit app on fitbit.com and says, would you like to install this thing? So it's basically giving you your own app store, in this case, to put your spyware in. Yeah, and served from a legitimate fitbit.com domain. Um, so I completely upfront, these things aren't displayed uh, in the Fitbit store. So if you go to the Fitbit store and search them, you would never find them. Uh, they are only there if you share the link. But how often do we see ads for apps uh, in forums and games where you click the link and it takes you there? And this opens up in the Fitbit app. So actually, socially engineering these things into people's environments is a lot easier. And So that's slightly confusing. That's a bit confusing. They have what they call a gallery, but your your application by default wouldn't appear in that gallery wouldn't be searchable in that gallery it, you you can add it to that their app their app store but then it's not like it's suddenly sort of published to the world it, so it goes into their gallery it's in their app store it's just by default it's invisible but still there it, if you know the link then you click it it's there it's it's that kind of privacy thing rather than a uh, published thing. It's, it's in the public domain from what I've seen. You still get a gallery.fitbit.com slash um, URL, but it's not listed overtly on any of their directories on the front page of uh, of gallery.fitbit.com. Uh, Is that right, Kev? Yeah, that, that's absolutely it. It's, it's there. It's just you can only find it if I tell you it's there. And if I'm an attacker, I'm social engineering, then I can just send you an email with it or I just buy advertising space. There's any number of ways that you could attempt to get people to install that application. The most obvious would be by making it clickbaity in 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 some in some way. Um, you know, there are certain there are certain kinds of links that people like statistically people are much more likely to click on. So you you essentially create your application to be appealing in that way, um, and then you know, then you hope that people will um, will uh, install it. And the, I guess the more um the more uh what's the word that i'm looking for <laughs> i don't want to say base but you know what i mean <laughs> the more uh universally appealing you can make what your watch face does um also the the statistically the the more quickly they will accept the default permissions that that app requests um so and th and there i think like in therein is where the real challenge is so i guess you could also load it into a malvertising campaign and then t could you target by device for people who've got fitbit devices and 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 you could get some pretty good scale there i guess and so that's an interesting thing so i, I don't think we've mentioned this yet so 
the way Fitbit apps work isn't like the traditional app store. So we've talked about uh, like Google up until now, but this thing also installs on iPhone devices because the way this works is Fitbit maintained their own app store. And when you install a Fitbit watch face or a Fitbit app, you're not going through the Play Store or through the App Store. Uh, those things are downloaded and installed into the Fitbit application. So uh, it works on anywhere you can run a Fitbit. So whether it's Android or iOS or any future stack, uh, we're completely bypassing all of their controls. So installing spyware into App Stores and Play Stores is significantly harder than it is to install it into Fitbit because they're, they're less uh, tight on their checks. One of the things that I, I wanted to ask while we were talking about this as well, Kev, to you with with a uh, curious mind, shall we say, um, wh- what what could you actually do with wholesale data collection of people's bio bio data, you know, heart rate and size and weight and all that kind of stuff? I know, obviously, there's a lot of people who are uh, worried about that kind of data being stolen, but um, I've never I've never quite put my finger on exactly what you could do with it. Uh, I honestly don't know. Um, the the bio data in itself is main probably useful to somebody. Whether it would be useful in a large uh, large scale campaign, I don't know. I think one of the biggest threats uh, for this thing is more in the um, like the stalkerware, uh, where we know that people are aggressively stalking like partners and and children and things of that nature. Uh, because it contains all that geodata. If you're heavily targeting who's getting this, then having that real-time geodata, I mean, you can track sleep states, you can track their activity states, you can track where they're coming and going. And I think that's the the real danger of this rather than like leaking PII or anything like that. So imagine I have been able to install spyware on my, you know, on, on my, I'm a jealous partner. I've been able to install spyware on my partner's phone. And now I've also been able to install spyware on their, on their Fitbit. I'm getting a very complete, complete um view of of what my partner is doing now not just both um not just digitally but also physically because i know where they are and i know you know their 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 heart rate which i realize seems kind of frivolous but it, it is true the other thing um we've seen in the past is where medical records have been compromised and hackers have used the information in those medical records to um target you know particular individuals with particular kinds of scams and i suppose there is the potential for that here where we're able to see things like um you know height weight and heart rate there there might also be the 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 potential for um for malicious actors to to use that information to find a way to target individuals that could be uh, that could potentially be vulnerable i've got to be very clear so the 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 api is really restricted so like normal apps can't read text messages or access phone calls. They can't do any of that. But one of the interesting things that I could do was I could generate fake texts and fake alerts because I can I control the screen of your device, which means I can render whatever I want onto the screen so I can make it look like you just received a text message. Um, and I could have those, like you interact with those buttons uh, on the screen. So like you're limited very much just by the imagination of the attacker um they're very versatile devices um so there's a lot of stuff you can do and uh getting outside of the um like how can i use this as a stalker spyware uh if this goes into an organizational context um then 
there's a lot of stuff I can do in that side of the house as well. Um, I can actually use uh, a watch face installed on your watch with your phone to start scanning your internal organization's IP range. And from there, you can do you can do what, Kev? Uh, again, so I'm kind of limited by the imagination of the attacker. So in the testing uh, that I did, I was able to scan the entire IP range looking for web servers. Uh, and when I found a web server, I was able to talk to it. So an example of where this could be abused is uh, I'm an attacker. You've got my watch face installed on your watch. You've gone into your office environment. You're now on your corporate Wi-Fi with your phone. Uh, I scan all the IPs and I look for a SharePoint server, which you might be running. Uh, I find the SharePoint server. I now instruct your watch and your phone to transfer every single document from your SharePoint server to me. Wow. So so you don't need Edward Snowden anymore. You just need a fit. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't he a SharePoint admin? I think he was, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. he, says, yeah. he says he was. Who knows anymore? <laughs> this uh, goes to something we were talking about recently on the podcast as well though the the zero log on you know if you if you've got yourself onto the network and you can you can see it and you know what to connect to that point you could potentially look to exploit a vulnerability like that yeah um the, the you're still quite limited by what we can do so uh we're running in a javascript engine so i'm limited to only doing the things i can do inside javascript so uh, reading web pages, connecting to web services, uh, and sending that data back is easy. Uh, doing other things like uh, zero login, like those are probably outside of the scope. Um, but then again, like I've seen people put some very complex JavaScript packages together. So again, if you've got a determined attacker who's got the skills to put those kind of packages together, there's no limits to the things they could do. Like I said, these are versatile platforms. Uh, they're capable of doing some very complex things. So uh, I have no doubt an attacker would find a way to uh, to abuse the the systems. Let's take a step back to think about the kind of the the, the human element in in this is the is the fact that I'm installing a thing on a device that I own. In this context, it's a it's a wearable because that. And I think this is why you highlighted the fact that, you know, it gives you a Fitbit.com address to go to, to go and install it. So that's that's the first thing where in your mind you're like, this is legitimate because I am going to the Fitbit store and I'm going to install it from the Fitbit store, the Fitbit gallery, whatever. Um, that's That's the first part. And then the second part is because I have installed it from that Fitbit gallery my attitude to giving it permissions to do things is different because I, you know, I may make an assumption that the Fitbit gallery has checked to make sure that it's not doing anything, uh, doing anything nefarious, but it feels like, and, and I, and I know Kev, now you can probably talk to us a little bit about Fitbit's kind of response to you, um, um, make disclosing this to them, but it feels as though they're kind of saying, actually, because the API is so limited, um, that's the controls that we've put in place anything that exists in the gallery, um, you know, people have to give the app permissions. And so we've covered ourselves there. Whereas I guess a lot of people ignore those permissions and just install the app. And that potentially is where the window of risk is opened. The permission set isn't as strong as um, like you'd expect to find on a, a normal application, but they do have a permission set. So like when you go to install something, the developer will have said, these are the permissions it needs. Uh, and that's calendar, internet, location, user profile data, and running background. Um, so you can be selective about that. And one of the things I didn't uh, kind of like, and 
Um, when you do that, they're all pre-ticked, and the pop-up says, for the best experience, select all permissions below. <laughs> select, with a select all button. But for the best experience, for who? Yeah, uh, and they're all pre-selected. <laughs> yeah. And I think the exception to that is on the iPhone, the calendar isn't by default selected. But I'm not sure if that was... Uh, just something quirky with my setup because I hadn't properly connected my calendar to my test device or not yet, but uh, everything was selected by default. Um, so where do you where do you fall on that debate then, Kev? Do you do you think they should be unticked by default? Yeah, it should. Same as GDPR, these should be like opt in. I decide if I want to give it those permissions, and I make a conscious choice to do so uh, by turning that permission on. Um, rather than we know people are like arguably lazy and like if i'm installing an application or a watch face i want to see it that's why i'm installing it so i just want to like next 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 my way uh through all of these annoying pop-ups especially if you called it sexy fitbit watch faces in in the, <laughs> in the gallery uh, you know yeah of course and and that and th- that that is proven those those um those int- intrinsic factors used to drive people to malicious uh you know links and applications we know that works so basically the minute that you see um the thing that you want the process that you have to go through in order to get that thing on your on your device just because just is a barrier to you now you're not you there is the security implications on you're not seeing them anymore you're just seeing a button that you need to click to get the thing installed on your device and so in a way this this process the ration the, the process you've just laid out um in a way it sort of plays to that you know for the optimal experience just click okay and don't worry a pretty little head about it i responsibly disclosed this like to fitbit and like i went to them and said like I, this isn't a vulnerability like you don't have like massive issues with this code i said i just have a few concerns with the app development life cycle with the process and i think it's potentially open to abuse and that's kind of how i went in uh, on the initial approach and i gave them some examples uh and like to their credit they were like very responsive um like almost immediately coming back to me and uh, and they recognized that yes what i was saying wasn't strictly a vulnerability uh there was some social engineering aspects to it but they recognized that it was open for abuse there's quite something quite interesting in in that that they didn't necessarily recognize a human vulnerability as a vulnerability where does the definition of vulnerability kind of start and end though really i mean that's a whole can of worms (laughs) that you could open up really but to me you know if something's something's putting people at risk it doesn't matter if it's a piece of code or a, a lump of flesh it still should be treated in the same way really and if you're the builder of that technology then you have responsibility to 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 make that thing secure surely so you should just because you can't categorize it and give it a cve number just should do you not think that you could uh that that, that their priorities are slightly skewed there uh, absolutely and th- this is where i kind of liked their response so they came back and they said like we accept that and i said whilst it's not uh treated the same way to them they did come back and say we accept that those are the things and they asked for like what would you suggest we do so they were really open with um like asking uh me as the reporter to say like you're right uh have you thought any consideration uh, so I went back with a couple of suggestions, uh, and again they started to to look at those. And I think uh, like three out of the five suggestions that I made, uh, they're actually working towards implementing them uh, right now. Yeah, I suppose it's that thing where 
you know, a, a security researcher finds a vulnerability and we're inserting loads of context into that ourselves. And the context we usually insert is, oh, it's probably a technical thing, something to do with the code, something that can be, you know, something that can be technically hacked, um, you know, in order to in order to deliver a, a malicious thing or to exploit something. And actually, I think what we're what we've what we've uncovered in this case is that the the human factor in in this story is largely forgotten. If you look, if you look at it in the context of if I could execute code remotely and get Kev's exact same piece of spyware up on a gallery URL, they would have an absolute tizzy, wouldn't they? And and that and that would, regardless of the of the outcome, they would treat that far more seriously than they treat. Um, just a uh, you know, it's a procedural hole that that, that that Kev seems to have been able to fall through. Yeah, and I, as you went through the disclosure, and I I'm like I'm not releasing any of this code or any of the process. Um, but in the conversations with them, we did come up with a couple of methodologies that even Fitbit themselves said were incredibly likely to have made it all the way through the validation process to the point where I could be publishing malware and even their manual checks uh, and their automated checks wouldn't have detected the fact that I'd published malware all the way through. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that is an interesting conundrum there, isn't it? The human human vulnerability is not seen as as important as the technical one. The result is the same. Uh, it's just that, yeah, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a cultural thing, isn't it? In the in the in the landscape of of technology, um, it you know the protection of, <laughs> ironically, the protection of the user and their and their data is not taken as seriously when that could be socially engineered through something as it is when it might be as a result of a of a technical vulnerability. I think is what we're saying. So no massive bug bounty for you on this one, Kev, unfortunately. <laughs> Sadly not. I mean, that was never the reason I was going in for this, but um yeah, no. Maybe they'll send you maybe they'll send you a watch or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they have just released the new watch. I am I am looking at purchasing <laughs> one. So Fitbit, if you're listening, uh, send one, I'll be happy to take it. Shameless. Absolutely shameless. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk a, a little bit. I mean, you covered uh, some of this or alluded to some of this already. But in terms of the in terms of the response, um, Kev, how have you how have you felt about the way that they've responded? First of all, actually, maybe talk us through some of the timelines here and um, and what their response has been like. Everything started off really fast. Uh, so we're in different time zones uh, between me and the Fitbit security team. Um, but I'd emailed them on the first day, and then like when I woke up the next day, I'd had the response. And going back and forth, like they were, uh, so I was dealing with the same person every time, uh, and they were really open. Like they're really engaged. Like they, like we had a good questions back and forth. Um, so that was really positive. When they first came back, they said that there were some things they could look to do, and they were going to talk about them um, and discuss them internally. And it wasn't until we went to them and said, uh, "Okay, we're wanting to publish," um, that was where things everything started to slow down a little bit and I, I get there's reasons why. Um, so we said we want to publish um, one because it's an interesting piece of research, or at least I think it's an interesting piece of research. Um, but secondly, it's all about raising awareness, especially if 
Fitbit are going to be slow and I recognize that this is social engineering so maybe there's not a lot they can do uh, so raising awareness is the other thing we can do to protect the community so once we said that like they didn't like, the thing I like is they didn't just go in and shut us down uh, I honestly when I was sending that first email off where I was saying I'm I'm we're thinking about publishing I assumed the next thing I was going to get was a cease and desist from lawyers at Fitbit um, but they didn't they were they're open they came back and said um like let's have a look um they came back with some comments they came back with some changes that they'd like to see uh, and then we worked with them to go backwards and forwards to find like a really nice middle ground at that point from the communications that i've seen it, it's it's then that it starts to slow down which makes me think as a comms person that Maybe it's then being once you say the magic word publish and they think it's going to be in the public domain, it gets some kind of special escalation procedure kicks in. And you've probably then got someone within Fitbit who is assigned to the uh, vulnerability research team or the emergency response team or whoever they are, um, who, who's, the, who's then helping the person on the end of the uh, disclosure to position things in a way that um kind of mitigates the reputational impact because that 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 is how i would do it if i was if i was inside fitbit basically that's when you bring in the evil pr guy who uh (laughs) sits in the background pulling the strings (laughs) yeah and for anybody who's looking to do this kind of disclosure especially if you do it on behalf of your company like when i got that point the other thing i did was i reached out to my legal team and my pr team and said this is what i'm going to be saying (laughs) Are you okay if I say that? Yeah, I mean, I think that so, uh, and and in the landscape as it is today, whilst I think that responsible disclosure has has made things better, those who listen to the podcast will know that I have um, I have views about the effectiveness of responsible disclosure as it stands today. We also have situations now where. Uh, companies who are being approached by researchers to tell them that there are things that they've identified that need to be fixed now see responsible disclosure as a way for them to own the narrative a and also to own the time frame which seems to be the biggest one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing and and kev i, I want to uh, uh, you know ask you to talk about this explicitly in the in the context of in the context of how this experience went with fitbit but it feels like vendors now want to say okay well thank you for uncovering that thing we take security very seriously we will definitely fix this within the next six to eight to 12 months you know i'm i'm exaggerating but you know what but you know what i mean there is this there is this need for them to feel like they can own now the vulnerability um and and therefore preserve their reputation by owning the vulnerability that is very much fitbit's way so if this disclosure was actually a traditional vulnerability uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all uh, because the de facto fitbit vulnerability disclosure program uh, bans the researchers from disclosing it's a zero disclosure policy Uh, sorry you're gonna have to explain that to me so you can disclose it to fitbit but but you can't tell anyone else Uh, fitbit run a bug crowd uh, and there's a big notice here that says this program does not allow disclosure. You may not release information about vulnerabilities found in this program to the public. So basically, if you want to get paid, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. If the researcher is a researcher who part of their job or the way they're looking to earn their living is by publishing their research for the benefit of others, and that is removed, I guess, to protect the vendor because the vendor is the one who pays the money, that 
that feels a bit wrong to me. So uh, looking at the, the stats, there are 500 people uh, listed in the Fitbit Hall of Fame. So there's at least 500 vulnerabilities of some description that have existed in Fitbit, which we as a community may not uh, know or understand the ramifications of. When you start to dig into this stuff is when you really begin to, it begins to expose some of this, we take your security seriously um, pat that we hear. It's basically like, we'll use the vendor like Bug Crowd or... um, Hacker one will 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 uh, use that as a way to you know um, find out about vulnerabilities. We'll pay a little bit of money when you consider that they're you know they're probably a, a company worth in in the billions of dollars. Um, we'll we'll throw a little bit of money at them in the event that they in the event that they find some stuff, and that will keep that will kind of keep the infosec community happy. Yeah, it's is it not stuffing people's mouths with money and telling them to go away? Is what you're saying? The, the surprising thing for me is Fitbit is now Google, so Google purchased Fitbit, and Google have a really good disclosure program better paid more open more respected like uh, they have a really good program and they're very open about their program i've dealt with the google uh, responsible disclosure program before so uh, maybe this is just part of part of the fitbit purchase that hasn't yet migrated over to like that Google architecture, or maybe Google are just leaving them as a separate entity. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about it. And I, I, we, it's been alluded to this idea that you know the vendor often will then try to uh, try to own the, the narrative. How did how how, how have you responded um, to Fitbit in that context, Kev? So when they when it's clear that things have started to slow down, maybe I think there were some um, reviews of the of the of the blog that I was that I was involved in and and that they seem to be making some quite significant asks in that in that context like how has that been handled mainly it's me poking them um (laughs) so uh after we sent the first one off I think it was uh I think it was late in the week so I waited until like the Monday or the Tuesday at that point it was five days since I'd last heard from them so I just like gentle pokes like hello uh, you had a chance to read it yet? And then they came back to me the very next day and said, it, yeah, sorry, we've had a look and here's our recommendations. Um, and then, like I said, uh, and like this makes this makes sense for them from a PR perspective. Um, and a lot of the requests and a lot of the changes they were requesting were more about trying to save face the nuances in the the nuances in the language and all those things that anthony's probably really familiar with when i when i read the uh the back and forth that you'd have with them i was it's quite obvious as someone who's done it for many years where they start trying to suggest opinions as opposed to um uh facts do you know what i mean it's when they when they started to 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 talk about um can you possibly, you know, change the way that you say this? You know, that that's when it started to feel to me like someone was possibly uh, pulling the strings in the background from a comms point of view. So it's at that point, I guess at the moment where you say we are going to publish, they've got a whole bit of machinery at that company that that basically gets turned on, which involves, I would guess, legal and comms principally. Uh, yeah, they were. Yeah, legal and comms will be the two people, the two teams will be largely involved there. Um, you have to be quite an advanced organisation. I would imagine Fitbit probably is if it's part of Google to actually have a dedicated comms resource for things like this um, for disclosure. Um, but I would imagine Fitbit probably do because. You know, they've they, they built their, their whole value in their business is in their brand, really. I mean, the underlying technology is not greatly removed from cheaper versions. Um, but <laughs> and, 
God, I tell you what, Anthony, it's lucky no one listens to this. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. They could try and sue me. They'll get absolutely square root of nothing anyway. It's fine. <laughs> but the value of that company, as with many technology companies, is now, you know, 50% in the brand. And um, and they clearly recognize that. And so they're quite, they're quite good at um, uh, seeking to kind of uh, cut off any threats to that. Um, which is probably why they've got some kind of dedicated team there. Again, this is all massive speculation. It's probably completely wrong, and you've got a very good uh, a very good guy at the end of the line dealing with it technically. But that's how I would act. Kev, how how much um, latitude would you be prepared to give them? Let's say they came back to you and said, um, "No, Kev, we really we're going to do some things to fix this, and we really would like you not to publish." What would your response to that be? So it's kind of what they did. So they came back. Um, and they said, uh, thank you very much. We've read through it all. Um, they looked at the suggestions I suggested on ways that we could improve uh, the process to make it more obvious to users that there was potential danger there. And they came back with a small roadmap that says, uh, we aim to have, like, we've taken these three steps. We're going to have two of these steps completed by uh, the 9th of October, and the last one's going to be shortly thereafter. So do you mind holding off um, until that point? And absolutely, like, I'm not in this for the prestige. I'm in this to try and, like, improve security. Uh, so I'm more than happy to turn around and say, yeah, you're you're fine. Like, let, let's hold off until you've got those protections in place, and then let's push this forward together. What if they'd said, let's hold off until November the 5th or January the 9th? Or... There's, there's a line, and I suppose it depends on what they're suggesting. So if the, the changes they've made that what's on the surface seem very small, they are quite high impact uh, in notifying the user. So uh, I know from my experience in software development that that's going to take some time to go through, but it shouldn't take several months. So if they came to me and said, like, this is going to be three months, I'd be like, well, no, like, hang on. Some, either you are really slow at putting security in place um, and therefore you've got bigger issues or you're you're not taking this seriously. And then I'd try and use the threat of publishing to put more pressure on them. Um, uh, so I think we've mentioned this on the podcast, but broadly speaking, there are three disclosure timelines. There's 30 days, there's 60 days, there's 90 days. And depending on the severity, you pick one of those, uh, working with the organization. I think, uh, and it's hard cause I'm, I'm guessing, but I'd be happy to go for like a 60 day disclosure process, uh, if they're committed to delivering within that 60 days. Um, if they get to that 60 days and they ask for more, if they're open and they explain why they need more time, then like I'm in this to make the ecosystem safer. So I'm happy to take some delays, but there's going to be a point where I was like, all right, you're pulling the wall over my eyes. I'm just firing that publish there, button. Therein lies a very interesting question though. So if you get to 60 days and it won't happen with a big reputable organization like Fitbit, but say, uh, a lower end, uh, smartwatch manufacturer who maybe knocks out, um, five or six different brands um, of these of these types of things has a, um, a a common vulnerability in all of them. You disclose that to that that smartwatch manufacturer because they're not they're not you know they don't care they just sell stuff on Amazon they don't you know they're more about high volume uh, low brand if you like 
And then what happens if you get to that? They they take your initial email and they say, thank you very much. You know, we'll look at fixing it. And you get to 60 days and they just disappear off the face of the earth. Because I know people have been in that situation before. And that is a tough one because um, what do you do? I mean, they quite often these are companies that don't really have any real real offices or, you know, legal representation or comms representation. It's just people making technology. And, and sometimes because you can sell on these online platforms now in such volume, it might be a very, very small company, but it's got a huge potential marketplace because everyone wants a 15 quid smartwatch if it works. Uh, and, 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 and then you've got something which has potentially massive impact. Um, and you're stuck in a situation whereby you don't know whether to publish and be damned, you know, disclose and save some, try and save some people by putting them off using that brand, or you just don't say anything and zero happens and, you know, a dangerous, a dangerous piece of kit is left out. This there. is exactly what happened with the HP story that we covered recently. The guy had found a, a, you know, a kind of a lone researcher really he found a vulnerability that was, it was bad. It was a it was a nearly a ten. It was a nine point nine. So it was a was severe vulnerability. Um, had gone to a gigantic company to tell them that there was this problem. They had come back and said, "Okay, we'd like to do this on a ninety day disclosure." And he was like, "This is a. This is easy to fix. B. It's a problem for all of your customers using this particular platform." Um, you know why? Why this doesn't take ninety days? Um, and so therefore, I'm going to disclose basically immediately on i think it ended up being more like 30 days um so it was almost like because there wasn't the because the rationale hadn't been applied in a formal way um and the two parties couldn't agree in the end the disclosure just happened in a very chaotic way and it ended up making hp who were the vendor in this in this case it it made them end up looking awful really is is that not similar to how mimicats kind of went down as well okay you'll know better than i but isn't didn't it wasn't it the researcher who built mimi cats initially trying to prove to microsoft that he could capture passwords in memory or something and uh microsoft i don't know sent him away somewhere um and then he published it and then hey presto it was soon being loaded into every kind of attack left right and center and um and it's still kind of um, it gets used to, to this day, doesn't it? M- Mimikatz is one of those ubiquitous tools. Like it's in every pen tester, blue teamers, attackers, Arsenal. Um, in fact, so we, uh, it's just been updated to include the zero login stuff. Uh, like Gentile Wiki, he's a machine uh, uh, understanding the internal workings of uh, Windows in that. And yeah, it, it's it is. It's one of those ubiquitous tools. We probably do have to reach a point where the researchers feel like they can claim back some control over how over how disclosure works, and the, there there might be an argument that the that the programs that many vendors are using has sort of removed some of that. So as good as it has been, and it's probably uncovered a ton more, um, you know, a ton more vulnerabilities, it has also risked creating a an ecosystem where the 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 researcher is kind of not really in control yeah i think the interesting thing about that from a from a in-house i.e the person in a big organization comms point of view is um you've got to engage with people nowadays and you 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 kind of start you you both start by agreeing to give each other a cuddle basically um and that's kind of the you know that's that's the the first thing that you do, you know, you both agree that you want to work together and you want to disclose this thing, um, 
responsibly and you want to work uh, work together to fix the problem, etc. Uh, when it starts getting a bit hairy is when you actually start getting down into the details of, you know, is this thing a fact or is this thing an opinion? And can we, uh, as the big organization, position that in a slightly different way to so people will, will read it? you know, slightly differently so we can start to control the narrative and push it in a slightly more gentle direction. And as a, as a researcher, uh, I, I mean, researchers are very clever people and they can see that that's, that, that kind of thing is happening. And that, that is when the friction starts, right? And you've got you've to just try and minimize that friction as much as possible. And, and it's like journalism. If, if you stick to the facts, there will be no problem, really. And that's, and that's how, you got, how, you have to, how you have to act in these situations. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, this whole thing is so much better than the way that it used to be. And the way that it used to be was I send you in a thing saying you've got a problem. You get an email back from my legal team saying, stop, go away, get in your car, disappear. Do you know what I mean? So we've actually we have actually come quite a long way in probably the last five or six years as it is. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is a few wrinkles that are caused by personality character you know corporate imperative all of that kind of stuff when you start to get down into the detail but but ultimately the the ones who try and understand that the researcher is doing this for the right reasons are the organizations who are good at this i think if you've enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe rate and comment wherever you get your audio content and if you want to know more about immersive labs you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on twitter at immersive labs uk until next time goodbye thank you for having me no never ever again that's it <laughs> <laughs> Go, 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 go